Are recent mRNA vaccines manufacturing strange deposits in the brain? Is Health Canada's determination to get the COVID vaccine approved overwhelming the precautionary principle? Are the elites building a fortune off of the misinformed masses undone by COVID? How thoroughly will the fourth industrial revolution change our economy and our society? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we dive even deeper down the rabbit hole of the COVID vaccines and the numerous other fictions associated with the pandemic in order to effortlessly accomplish the dreaded Great Reset. In our first half hour, Dr. Chris Shaw spells out his opposition to the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines from a neuroscientific perspective. In our second half hour, after a brief review of many of the myths of the pandemic, we get the overview on The Great Reset from author Diana Jonestone, author of the November article, The Great Pretext for Dystopia. On this week's program, the vaccines, the plunder, and the arrival of The Great Reset with guests Chris Shaw and Diana Jonestone. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 29, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis in the historical territory of the Nehiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Love greetings to Moscow. Biden threatens to end Putin's tyranny. Biden made this poisoned promise to the Russian president long before his stolen election as the new U.S. president about the upcoming private meeting of selected warmongers in Munich. He says, quote, like no other global forum, Munich connects European leaders and thinkers with their peers from across the world, unquote. However, the only certain thing about this so-called security conference postponed because of the corona plague is that the world's worst warmongers are again beating the war drums. That was from the introduction under the headline, International Warmongers Beat the War Drums for War Against Russia, by Dr. Rudolf Hansel, posted January 27th, published in NRHZ 552. A court in France on Monday heard a case brought by a French-Vietnamese woman against over a dozen multinational corporations she accuses of causing grievous harm by selling the defoliant Angel Orange to the United States government whose use of the deadly chemical during the Vietnam War has killed, maimed, or seriously sickened hundreds of thousands of people to this day. 
Agence France Presse reports the suit was brought by Tran To Inga, 78, an activist and journalist who was working in Vietnam when she was exposed to Agent Orange. Tran suffers from diabetes and a blood disorder she transmitted to her second daughter. Her first daughter died of a heart defect when she was 17 months old. Tran also contracted tuberculosis twice, had cancer, and suffers from an extremely rare insulin allergy. Initially, Tran blamed herself for the afflictions that have plagued her and her children. That comes from the article, French Court Hears Case Against Chemical Corporations Over Agent Orange Use in Vietnam by Brett Wilkins, posted January 27th, originally published at Common Dreams. In the last months before his death, JFK opened secret communications with Soviet Premier Khrushchev and used a journalist to communicate directly with Fidel Castro. JFK proposed face-to-face talks aimed at reconciliation with Cuba. Kennedy's initiatives toward reconciliation and peace were opposed by the CIA and militarist elements in the government. As reported in the NY Times, Kennedy privately told one of his highest officials he, quote, wanted to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds, unquote. Before that could happen, JFK was assassinated and his policy changes reversed. That comes from the article, What Happened to JFK and a Foreign Policy of Peace? by Rick Sterling, posted January 27th. You and I know that quote-unquote experts can differ on scientific questions and that their opinions can vary in accordance with and demands of politics, power, and financial self-interest. In every lawsuit, leading highly credentialed experts from opposite sides routinely offer diametrically antithetical positions based on the same set of facts. The trouble is that today, in the political arena, dissenting voices that question government policies and corporate proclamations are silenced by censorship and vilification. In this special report, our CHD team explores the legal rights to informed consent, bodily integrity, the right to refuse unwanted medical interventions, religious expression, and autonomy. All of these rights will be dramatically constricted if employers, states, and or the federal government impose vaccine mandates. That comes from a letter to 100,000 lawyers under the headline, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Individual Rights and Freedoms Under Siege in Era of COVID, by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., posted January 27th, originally published at Children's Health Defense. Nazi Germany was now publicly rearming, though in secret for months she had been gradually augmenting her fighting power with assistance coming from the U.S. and British centers of power. In July 1934, the conservative leader Baldwin said of Germany in the House of Commons, quote, She has every argument in her favor, from her defenseless position in the air to make herself secure, unquote. In October 1936, 
the U.S. ambassador to Nazi Germany, William Dodd, who was previously a history professor, wrote a letter to President Roosevelt elaborating on U.S.-Nazi business collaboration. In the letter, Ambassador Dodd revealed that, quote, more than a hundred American corporations have subsidiaries here, Nazi Germany, or cooperative understandings, unquote. Dodd noted that the U.S. chemical corporation DuPont has links to German companies, quote, that are aiding in the armament business, unquote. That comes from the article, In the 1930s, UK and US business ties to Nazi Germany, Churchill's Admiration of Adolf Hitler, by Shane Quinn, posted January 27th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In the United States on Tuesday, President Biden announced he would be purchasing 200 million more doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. He says it will still take time to get into the desperate arms of Americans. In Canada, the vaccine is facing delays, but Trudeau seems to be doing everything he can to satisfy Canadian demands for the elixir. We had a guest last week mention the risks being outweighed by the promise of safety from COVID. However, we have another guest on our show who will contest the safety of the vaccine. He does so as a result of considering the impact of the vaccine on brain development. I spoke to him earlier this week. Joining me from his home in uh, Victoria, B.C., is uh, Chris Shaw. Dr. Chris Shaw is a specialist in neuroscience at the University of British Columbia. He brings his complaint about the hazards associated with Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to the attention of the public. Uh, Dr. Shaw, welcome. Uh, Before we assess your take on the new viruses containing the messenger RNA, could you give us a a brief summary of how you came to be involved (coughs) with Vaccine Choice Canada and your own vaccine hesitancy? Well, um, again, it's, it's kind of a mixed mixed answer here. Um, I, I know some of the people in Vaccine Choice Canada. I've known uh, Ted Koontz, who's, I guess, their director for a couple of years. And he asked me to <clears throat> be a moderator at a showing of the movie by Andy Wakefield called The Pathological Optimist. I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd crossed paths with him before. And, and so from that, basically, uh, you know, we kept in touch over the years. Um, and... My, my work really has more to do, not so much with vaccines per se, but with aluminum, one of the ingredients in, I don't know, something like half to two thirds of vaccines in the pediatric schedule. And I am primarily, as a neuroscientist, I'm primarily concerned with things that get into your brain that can do harm, and aluminum is one of those things. And it, it can harm the nervous system, whether you drink uh, things that have aluminum in them. And that's really over, you know, m- more in older age than younger age. Uh, and things if you inhale it, and there's a big study going on with minors in Northeast Ontario, 
looking at an inhalation of aluminum particles, <coughs> excuse me, and including by injecting it. And the, the, the difference between inhalation and dietary aluminum is that injected aluminum will go you know, into, into your brain in many cases. And what it does there is, is potentially very, very damaging because aluminum doesn't have a, a role in terrestrial biology. It just doesn't. And it was not usually bioavailable uh, over most of the, the time humans have been on Earth. So when you look at something like aluminum, it's pretty much only able to do havoc in, in, in any kind of cell, cell culture. Um, and it, it, again, it's not something we evolved with so that we don't, we don't really have biochemical processes that depend on aluminum. In fact, where it shows up, it can do a lot of harm. Now, that, that's not, it's not normally fast a harm, but it can be progressive over time. And there's some links to aluminum with various neurological diseases. We've seen it in the study of mice and Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, Chris Exley, who's probably the world's leading biochemist of aluminum, has, has evidence for uh, aluminum toxicity involved in Alzheimer's disease. And I think there is a growing view, not consensus by any means, but there's a growing view that aluminum at some level is involved in, in Alzheimer's disease. And that view uh, it takes the it, you know, takes the perspective that this can come from any of those sources. It can come from inhalation, diet, or or through vaccines, um, or other medical applications. And you know, so there there are reasons to be concerned about aluminum, kind of anywhere you find it. Now, having said that, aluminum is one of the most amazing metals that humans have ever extracted from from nature. Um, it's it's strong, it's durable, it's light, it's pretty much corrosion resistance conducts electricity. It's great stuff. And you want to make your airplanes and your boats and your cars out of it because it's, you know, it's light and it, it's, it's, it's strong. You just don't want it in your bodies. And so that's kind of how I got into the whole field. Um, and, you know, and so when people say I'm an anti-vaccine person, that's, per se, that's not true. I mean, I, I, I don't really have a big issue with what people take into their bodies, even if I think they're harmful. Um, and I think, you know, the basis of vaccination as a prophylactic and prophylactic medicine is always good medicine. The problem is when you put things in there or you use it as a panacea for every disease or you throw a vaccine at every possible human condition, I think you're running into a problem, potentially, especially when you're doing it early stages of neural development. And it would be like, like saying, well, you know, do I think antibiotics are good or bad? Well, I think they're great. Antibiotics are wonderful. You just don't prescribe it for everything. You don't prescribe it for, uh, for viral infections. You don't prescribe it every time you get a stubbed toe. You don't prescribe it for a lot of things because... For many years, we overused it. And the consequence of overuse of, of antibiotics was antibiotic resistance, uh, superbugs, um, and, and, and a lot of things that really were not you know, beneficial for human health. And I think any medicine, if it becomes the kind of the magic go-to thing for everything, it gets to be a problem. And you know, that, that's really my, my issue about it. And you know, what people choose to do with their bodies, frankly, that's their business. I, I don't, I, you know, that's, that's free choice. Uh, I, I have an issue where the people start mandating things uh, where you say you, you must take this medicine or you must take this vaccine or you must take whatever. And then that, that becomes a different, for me, a basically human rights issue. But well, um, apart from that, the, yeah. Looking at the current breed of uh, the vaccines by Pfizer and uh, Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, <laughs> they utilize mRNA. Uh, they encode yeah. it with antigen from SARS-CoV-2 and enter it into the cells in the body where the DNA can make copies of it. And then well, the immune system works uh, to stifle the potential of that protein. What flaws do you see in that okay. process? So it's, it's the mRNA 
technology is a very novel technology and in many ways it's really really interesting it's very cool molecular biology that's i i would agree with that and i see some of the applications that could happen and people have speculated about it. and i think even moderna did you could use it to in cases of let's say uh cardiac damage from heart attack you could use it to bro grow protein that might replace damaged uh, muscle cells that would be pretty cool there are other things you could probably do with it so what where they've harnessed it now is to make it a means to generate protein that will then trigger your immune system. So the idea is you take uh, kind of an artificial uh, um, messenger RNA that is very much like the one in, in, that would be in your body through the virus, <clears throat> and you encapsulate it, you put it in a protein coat and you inject it and it goes into your muscle cells and muscle cells are now, you know, that the, the mRNA goes inside the muscle cells, it comes out of its protein coat, it binds to ribosomes, which are the protein making machinery in the cells. And this complex, the mRNA ribosome complex now starts churning out protein of the spike protein. That now goes to the surface of the cell and the immune system now recognizes that and says, oh, there's a target for, you know, we, we should be aware of this. We, when we see it again, on a, let's say on a, on a natural virus, we're gonna be ready to deal with it because we have antibodies, we have memory cells, and we're just gonna be able to attack it sooner. And that, that, you know, that's the idea. The problem is I don't think either Pfizer or Moderna really have had all that much time to look at the other consequences that might happen with that. So what they're seeing in their, in their, in their studies and their safety and their efficacy studies, it looks like it works pretty well in terms of generating immune response. What they didn't do is really go into and interrogate the safety aspects of it. And I think we're seeing some of that play out now as the, as the vaccines roll out, we're seeing a lot of adverse effects. Um, and some of some things that look frankly like neural consequences, such as Bell's palsy. When you go back earlier in the literature where they actually did animal studies, what they saw was, and then this concerns me as a neuroscientist worried about neurological disease. What they saw was that the, this construct, the mRNA construct was found in various regions of the body, not just at the site where you injected it. And the standard view has been up until you know, very recently, what one hears is, oh, well, it only lasts for a little while, and then it breaks down because it is a very labile molecule. Uh, you know, the mRNA gets, you know, ground up by the various degradative enzymes, the protein, uh, sorry, the lipid coat comes apart, and then it's gone. Okay, fair enough. But in the animal studies they did, and there was a study I think I sent you a copy of, the, the animal studies where they actually looked at mice and looked at where it actually went, you find it all over the body and you find it in the brain. You don't find a lot of it in the brain, but you do find some. Now, foreign things inside the brain have the potential to create an autoimmune reaction within the brain. And you don't want that. You, you do not want your microglia to go start attacking cells that might have this in it. But we don't, we don't know where in the brain it is. We don't know if it's inside cells or outside of cells. The question I ask is, why is it there at all? And I, I, I don't know, and I don't know the answer. I'm guessing, and it's a guess, I'm guessing it's being picked up by immune cells and hauled around to different uh, body compartments. But that wasn't supposed to happen as I understood it. It was supposed to do its thing, generate the protein and then be gone. Your immune system would then be primed and you wouldn't have no residual mRNA anywhere. And that from the animal studies doesn't seem to be true. Is it true in humans? I don't know. Remember, you know, remember animal studies don't always give you the same outcomes that you would find in humans, but no one's looked. So we don't know where it is. And from a neuroscience perspective, I see something going into the brain past the blood brain barrier as a foreign uh, protein, as a foreign construct. 
not being something your immune system is going to be very tolerable about, I think. Um, on top of which, the other concern I had is, you know, one thing we know about neurological diseases of all kinds is that basically they're one of the, one of the hallmark features are these clumps of abnormal protein that form these kind of what are called beta sheet uh, configurations. And they, they may be toxic in their own right. And on top of which, they certainly gum up the machinery of the cell. And these tend to show up as, you know, for you, you find equivalent kinds of sheets in of different kinds of proteins in Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's and Alzheimer's and Huntington's. These, that's what they do. And what this kind of protein, is it going to do the same thing? I have no idea. But you made, if, if, if it's in your brain, you potentially are making some of your brain cells little protein factories. And little protein factories can possibly have, have an, an impact that you don't want them to have inside the brain. I don't know that's going to happen, but then you'd have to go look and no one's, no one's done that. So the scientists at the company with then at the time was called uh, Valera, which is basically a sub, sub, uh, uh, sub company of uh, Moderna, basically never did any brain histology. They never went in and said, well, gee, that's interesting. We're finding it in the brain, not a lot, but we're finding it in the brain. Is there any consequence there? Are there any, any, any is there any inflammation? Is there, are there any dead brain cells? Are there, is there any kind of viral replication happening there? Is there not, not viral replication, but protein replication? Is there anything else happening there that we should think about? And are we looking at these animals for more than a few minutes, you know, after, after the vaccines? So they looked at for, for me, you know, 14 days, something like that afterwards. And then they sacrificed the animals and they, they don't seem to have done any of the things that, for example, I would have done. I would have looked in detail at the cellular level inside the brain because I would have been worried about that. Well, now, and maybe, maybe it would have come out that it's all fine. But, you know, you, you can say that, but you don't know that until you actually look. And they didn't. And they haven't done that for any of the studies. Uh, Pfizer hasn't done it. Uh, this is Pfizer hasn't done it either, as far as I can tell. Um, the the, the follow-up in, in safety trials for uh, different regions of the body have not been done. Um, well, I was wanted to, first of all, could you maybe, and maybe this is more of a speculative question, but what ex like exactly would have gone into building these strange uh, buildups of protein the way it was? And... Secondly, what big picture could be the result of this? I mean, uh, is there, I know, some other you know, diseases that would start to become common? I mean, you mentioned Bell's policy, but I mean, are there other, especially what goes to the brain? Well, okay, uh, Bell's palsy is not in the brain. It's, it's an inflammation of the seventh cranial nerve. And, um, you know, it, it, in both the Pfizer and Moderna trials, you saw it, and happening in the vaccinated uh, trial population, not in the not not in the control population. I think I think I think uh, Moderna had one out of uh, you know the fifteen thousand people get Bell's palsy in the control group, and four out of fifteen thousand. It's, it's not a high number, but it, it's it's a, it, it is an indication that something is happening somewhere in the nervous system. Um, and and then both, what both Pfizer and Moderna did is they basically cheated the numbers, even though they acknowledged that they had the Bell's palsy, you know, in much higher level in the vaccinated population. They said, well. It's no problem because when you look at the general population, not even their own controls, in the general population, that's kind of the number you would expect. Well, that's kind of cheating. I mean, the reason you have a control population is you're comparing your treated group to your, to your untreated group. And then when you say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because in the, in the population at large, which is everybody from zero to 110, that, you know, that's what you would expect. I and mean, that's not exactly why, you know, why, why you have that control population. That's what you're comparing to. So in, in this control population, they basically had uh, a lot less than they had with the vaccinated group. Um, so that's, that's, that's potentially a neural consequence. Um, and again, we don't know what it's actually doing in the nervous system. And so again, the precautionary principle for me would say, 
before we roll this out, let's figure out what exactly this, you know, what this could be a precursor to. And maybe nothing, but maybe, you know, and, and I realized they were, they had the emergency use, use authorization and you know, everybody's panicking that the disease is going to get them. And so maybe we have to take some risks. But again, I think the precautionary principle would say, well, maybe we need to be a little less panicked into going this route right now based on what we think the lethality of COVID-19 actually is. Um, and rather than rushing it to the population at large and giving a, essentially a large part of the population an experimental vaccine, of un, you know, which may have unknown future consequences, maybe take a little bit of a slower, slower approach. And you know, because they had the emergency use authorization, it's it's all you know, it's now out there in our country and in Britain and you know everywhere else. So you know, that's something from my perspective, looking at the disease itself, looking at the potential for harm in the nervous system, I would probably have taken a let's go slow, more slowly approach. Well, uh, Health Canada is <laughs> strict controls on the vaccines that get into the country and and. and you know, I, I, I'm wondering with the, uh, the, the the precautionary principle you stated, is it maybe being left aside in the in the name of getting this drug into the country? Or I think so. I think so. Or, yeah. Well, I, I think I think they have convinced themselves that COVID nineteen is such a mortal threat to most people that they are ready to suspend the precautionary principle and take some some risks. Um, and you know, Health Canada. <clears throat> is the is the agency in Canada that that gets to make that decision, um, but it, let's put it this way: it, it doesn't mean I'm going to rush out and get the vaccine because I'm going to look at it as a scientist, and I'm going to say, well, you know, right now, what do I think the the risk benefit and ratio is for letting the COVID uh, a virus, you know, be exposed to the COVID virus versus getting the vaccine, where I see the adverse effects of the vaccine rolling out. So you know, I, I know what I'll do. I mean, other people will make their free choices based on what, what they think the science shows and what they think, you know, their level of trust in Health Canada and the medical authorities. And that's fair enough. That's 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 you know, everybody is a free agent to make the, able to make those choices. I hope. Um, in currently in the news, there's uh, been a lot of excitement <clears throat> about the variants of this virus, uh, mm -hmm. and it's begin to crop up, uh, suddenly reminding people. Uh, you know, because it's more dispersive and so on, that, yeah. uh, it, it, that maybe there's an even more urgent need to vaccinate as, as, yeah. as quickly as possible. Could this be an actual discussion or are there any hints to this possibly being a hoax? Well, I don't think it's a hoax. I, I think, I mean, the, the kind of natural history of viruses is they, they, do, they do mutate and they do change their form. Uh, you know, in some sometimes fairly subtle ways. You know, one of the differences between the various influenza strains is that they're they're changing all the time. And one of the reasons it's been very hard to make a vaccine for them that works year after year, and why you, the vaccine formulations have to change year after year, is because you get different strains. So this would be kind of a natural trajectory for a virus in in a population. Um, Moderna claims, based on some cell culture work they did, that their vaccine will generate antibodies even to this new. Uh, variant. Um, and and, and I, you know, I, I haven't seen their actual literature. I've just seen their press release. Um, but you, know, the, you, you can expect this to happen. So the question is, will the vaccine actually be effective against it? We don't know. Um, and Or is it going to be a case where 
every year Moderna and Pfizer and the others come out with a new mRNA vaccine that you have to take two doses of too because all the different variants that are going to be cropping up year after year after year. From their financial perspective, I'm sure that's wonderful. Uh, from the health perspective of people, especially where the constructs seem to wander around, I'm not so sure. And again, I would, I would be skeptical that in the long term, that would be a particularly safe thing to do. But again, that's me. And that's, you know, remember, you know, my views are mine. They're not my universities or probably most of my colleagues. Uh, you know, and, and again, I'm approaching as a neuro, neuroscientist, not as an immunologist or a vaccinologist. They may have a very different opinion. But from the neuroscience perspective, based on what I know about neurological disease, it would be, I would be a little wary of doing this. Uh, and again, again, that's just me. Well, uh, Dr. Shaw, I do really appreciate your uh, unique not neuroscientist uh, take on the show. And uh, I thank you for sharing your findings and your concerns with our audience. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. We've been speaking with Dr. Shaw. He is a neuroscientist at the University of British Columbia. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. So notwithstanding the resistance from observers such as Dr. Christopher Shaw, the established narrative all throughout North America is that these vaccines are a blessing and really the only way to escape the ravages of COVID-19. No one will force people to take the vaccine, they say, but a vast onslaught of incentives will be placed in front of people to make it attractive. The question of issuing a passport or allowing a person to work or making it mandatory in schools are but a few of the difficult choices facing the masses. Eventually, as more and more people get vaccinated, there will appear two classes of individuals, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and medical and other authorities will make it painfully clear which side you want to be a part of. On last week's show, I mentioned scientists Michael Yeadon and William Wodarg, the credentialed individuals calling for a halt on the distribution of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines based on four problematic factors that were unresolved in their studies. I'll resurrect just one of those studies again. Essentially, the spike protein solicited by the mRNA. Those spike proteins, according to the two doctors, is homologous to the endogenous retroviruses responsible for the development of a placenta in mammals and humans and is therefore an essential prerequisite for a successful pregnancy. Therefore, antibodies to the former could easily attack the latter, rendering the placenta unable to form and registering the female recipient of the vaccine infertile. The situation has not been conclusively ruled out, and as of this date, no samples of material have been made available to patients or the public. These vaccines supposedly provide some relief from the symptoms of the disease but do not stop people from transmitting the virus. The chances of surviving the disease is, of course, 99.7%. An interesting statistic from the report, Anaphylaxis Following MRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Receipt, 
by Dr. Thomas Clark on December 19th. After only five days since shots from the Pfizer vaccine were authorized, there were 272,001 authorized shots and 5,052 were considered as health impact events, meaning unable to perform normal daily activities, unable to work, required care from doctor or health care professional. That's about 1.9%. A listener sent me a couple of emails containing files of actual freedom of information type requests. In total, there were 55 freedom of information requests sent to 44 institutions. The requests were attempts by individuals to validate the veracity of studies claiming isolation of SARS-CoV-2 from an infected human subject. The response to each one was the same. The documents do not exist. This means that universities and health agencies cannot provide the necessary isolation proving the existence of SARS-CoV-2 and proper vaccine and test development ever occurred. The studies do show use of monkey and synthetic RNA instead of human sample isolate. But even the CDC states they do not possess the isolate as part of the emergency testing protocol. This is extremely unusual. When Trump said the virus is fake like anyone else, the claim became imbued with the aura of yet another stupid conspiracy theory, rather like his claims with regard to hydroxychloroquine as a remedy, or his claims of the case counts being crazy. RT-PCR tests have wildly exaggerated the number of people presumed to be carrying a deadly disease. All these intelligible claims have been so widely refuted by media that most intelligent people on the left would discard it without even looking at it. But as we have discussed on this series, Trump, for a change, was telling the truth. Hence, the myth of COVID, the monster virus, remains doubly implanted in the nation's cognizance. More statistics I could throw at you. The billionaires have turned out pretty okay as a result of the lockdowns assaulting the planet. Americans for Top Fairness and the Institute for Policy Studies revealed that America's 651 billionaires combined saw their wealth collectively grow from $1 trillion from the beginning of the outbreak to roughly $4 trillion as of December 7, 2020. Meanwhile, a report from Swiss bank UBS found that last October, the world's billionaires, 2,189 in all, saw their fortunes increase by a factor of 27.5%, leaving them $10.2 trillion richer. These same billionaires who now own a percentage of our losses and most of the media are now promoting the new global reset that we've talked about in past episodes of this show. While millions of us face poverty, homelessness, many suicides and destitution, while taking away our right to protest, these elites see no reason to complain about anything. One of them said on occasion, there is a class war, and my side is winning it. 
This question of the Great Reset deserves more public disclosure. What follows is an interview with Diana Johnstone on that very topic. Born in Minnesota, Diana Johnstone has spent more than half her life in Europe as a political observer and journalist, working for Agence France Presse for In These Times as European correspondent and as press officer for the Green Group in the European Parliament. She holds a BA in Russian-era studies and a PhD in French literature. She's author of three books, including Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions, and co-author with her father, Paul H. Johnstone, of From Mad to Madness, Inside Pentagon Nuclear War Planning. Here she is talking to Chris Cook of Guerrilla Radio. Welcome back to the program, Diana. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, it's my great pleasure to have you, of course. Now, Diana, can we get to the nut of this? Just what is the Great Reset? Yes. Well, the Great Reset is the project that uh, has been promoted for some time by Klaus Schwab, um, who runs this World Economic Forum. So what what is that? Uh, my idea is that these famous meetings once a year in Davos, which brings together all these um, rich people and so on to plan how to make money. And I think the World Economic Forum, as I understand it, is a, is a sort of a mixture of a very, very high-level international capitalist consulting firm, which spots ways for profitable investment and then and then a gigantic lobby which uh, lobbies governments and politicians to favor the investments that they choose now the investments of the reset are basically all this high tech uh, artificial intelligence uh, finally tr- leading to transhumanism all, all sorts of uh, digital stuff which whose first and most drastic result, as I see, is to to continue to destroy jobs, which is not exactly what people want. So Klaus Schwab and and his, and his co-author see see uh, the COVID as a, as a sort of uh, I said as a pretext to advance the, this project, which they were advancing anyway and would advance after COVID, but. They they seem to like the idea of COVID because they see it as frightening people into being obedient and worried about health and ready to to do what they're told. I think they exaggerate that quite a bit because I think that in fact COVID also stimulates a revolt against the measures that are being taken. And so so I I don't agree with that, but I do want to point to to their project, which regardless of COVID, is very much uh, in the works. Prior, previously, they would use um, the climate change as the main pretext, and but then they find COVID being a more immediate pretext. But in any case, it's a project that's being very heavily pushed by major forces of capitalism, which would totally, uh, what they call it, the fourth industrial revolution, which would totally uh, change society and, in in fact, make us all very dependent on electronic gadgets, more so than we are now, even uh, totally, and I say, really making human contact more difficult than it is becoming, and uh, 
being devastating for the job market. The Great Reset is being discounted. People's concerns are being discounted as conspiracy theory. And our prime minister answered that recently. And he said, quote, I think we're in a time of anxiety where people are looking for reasons for things that are happening to them. The, the difficult moments we're in, and it's, and it's nice to try and find someone to blame, someone to point at, someone to get mad at. And so this is how our prime minister uh, discounts the whole idea that this Great Reset is something that we should be worried about. Uh, can I take comfort in the prime minister's words? Well, certainly not, uh, of course. Uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, all, all of that is very silly. It's not a matter of being mad at somebody. Uh, you, you read the, the book. Uh, he wrote, you read all of the uh, other things. This is, no, this is not a conspiracy. It's an absolutely open, vigorous plan to, for what he calls the fourth industrial revolution to completely uh, change our economy and our society. And I mean, it, it, I, I, there's, it's supposed to be something a little bit secretive about a conspiracy, and this could not be more open. It, it's perfectly obvious. Um, the, the description of it, is he says himself, you know, that that these devices, which will cost millions of jobs, what is going to happen to society? You see, this is going to accelerate the enormous polarization that we already are experiencing. You know, we're especially in the United States, this terrible polarization of wealth, and what you are getting is a billionaire class of oligarchs. Who will control all this? And uh, their their slaves will be machines, and more and more people will be simply uh, useless in society. Will simply be shoved out of, be supposed to be consumers of something or other. But it it will make millions of people totally uh, outside of of uh, of the economic production. And he says that. I mean, it's perfectly open. There's there's no surprise involved it, he says that but i think that he it would have some social measures maybe to keep people alive but turning millions of people into unproductive small consumers is imagine the the, the depression the uh, of people who who are excluded from from useful society it's it's a it's a totally inhuman, anti-human project. Well, it doesn't take a, a lot of imagination, actually. Uh, since April, millions have been tossed out of their jobs. And I remember in the early days uh, of uh, the COVID, when people were divided into groups of essential and non-essential, and the essential worker class had to go forward and, and unknowingly, you know, brave whatever dangers were to come. It was all very much unknown, although <laughs> there's plenty still that uh, isn't known. But we've already crossed that level that uh, the World Economic Forum uh, describes, where millions are already out of work and we're seeing the billionaire class making you know record profits while everybody else is going down down the tubes or at least the lower uh, the lower portions of the society i'm interested in uh, that term diana transhumanism and how it relates to the fourth industrial Re revolution or 4ir as it's commonly uh, acronymed uh, could you explain what transhumanism is and how it relates to uh, this fourth industrial revolution 
Well, the the part that I find most sinister of it, which is probably the vanguard of it, is making super soldiers. This is this is this is already in the works to enhance men, I suppose. I don't know if they're going to do this with women to 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 uh, enhance their brains and their bodies and so on, so that they will be superhuman uh, creatures. Uh, I, I mean, this this really means turning a select group of people into perfect killers, and then then of course they will say, well, we're doing these enhancements to make people more smart, or more, and then it will will trickle down. Of course, it won't. I mean, the idea is you're going to have a small elite of oligarchs, and they will have their their guards enhance humans or robots. And robots doing more and more of, of, of the work, it's, it is really a, a nightmare uh, scenario. And, of course, messing around with, with human beings in this way uh, is, they will say, of course, that this is going to be so wonderful for people. But it, it's the clear objective is to, to increase the differences between those who are powerful and strong, and those who are weak. It's very clear. It, it's an acceleration of polarization on a very large scale is what they have in mind. And uh, th- this is ext- extremely uh, sinister. My point is that it's not enough to complain about it. My, my, my point that I'm writing about is I think that there's time for people to, people have to get together and discuss the uses of technology, because right now all of this is being planned at a very high level, and the ordinary people are completely left out of the whole discussion. Com- the population is left out of the discussion of what should technology do and what should it not do. This is not a political subject. This is what bothers me. We have elections. Never do they discuss these day-to-day issues for instance, a very simple issue, which I think would be a popular issue, is that people are sick and tired of not being able to get anybody on the telephone when they have a problem, uh, <laughs> because all they can get is press the wrong number or the or something. And I think people have a great, great, great desire to talk to human beings, but the human beings are all being fired and replaced by these supposed smart machines, which are not smart at all. And I, I think there's a real popular movement there to say, stop, stop, stop. We, The customer wants to talk to a human being. We want someone to have a job. And But you see, these are not the political issues. The only issues that are put before the public now is how many women, blacks, and transsexuals are in the board of directors of some big company. That is that is being put forward as the issue that people should care about. And all of these things that defa- affect their d- daily lives are non-issues. They, we just sit here passively while this stuff is being planned at our expense. In case anyone thinks this idea of uh, super soldiers is far-fetched, there was criticism I read just recently, although it was of China, and they were, there were accusations that China, those dastards, were uh, creating super soldiers, where this doesn't seem to be uh, uh, something solely in their province. Uh, but as far as no, but making... That has to be the excuse. We have to say they're doing it. 
We always have to say, the United States says, we have to do all this because if we don't rule the world, the Chinese will rule the world. I mean, that's the constant excuse. Well, and I recall I'm old enough to remember the 10-foot Russian soldier uh, as well. And you you have to know, Diana, that uh, with the Democrats now getting ready to assume the presidency in the in the United States, that there will be women su- super soldiers as well. I mean, oh, they are I, the de- they're the Democrats after all. Well, I don't know if you'll know whether they're women or men. I mean, pretty soon – the distinction will be lost. But when you talk, when you talk, Diana, about these call centers, uh, we've already seen that that you know people that are the actual human beings. Although I think they'll just make the automated responses better and better until you won't be able to tell the difference. But the humans that are being used now are they're offshore to uh, foreign countries where they work for a pittance, or American prisons where more and more labor is being uh, uh, farmed out to corporations, which amazingly is a charge being made against Chinese slave labor. And now China is turning it back on the United States, saying, "Well, yeah, but your products are made by prison labor, so you know <laughs> what's good for the goose." Yeah, yeah. You see, I came around to the fact that I, I just. I think democracy has to be reinvented around these issues by stimulating real debate between people, not on social networks, but people. You know, you have to revive the old-fashioned thing of people getting together and discussing with their neighbors what they're for and what they're against and realize that we have to control of technology and we have to get to get control of technology. We have to there has to be control of investment investment. Where investment goes is what makes society. And, and at present, uh, investment is decided by private interests, and they choose to make weapons, they choose to make useless things, they choose to fire people. And there has to be um, a movement to, to take control of investment. When I say that, people don't easily understand what I mean, but because it goes very far. But you have to start with, with some political concern about what is shaping society and what is shaping society is not what nice things we say about people of a different group or something like that what what is shaping society is is investment which is totally outside of the political discussion or 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 ordinary people's concerns because they're not they're not allowed to be concerned about them yeah, this stratospheric macroeconomics. Well, follow the money, I think, is what the old saying is. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Gorilla Radio. I'm speaking today to Diana Johnstone. Diana is an author and essayist. Her book titles include Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton, uh, back again, by the way, and her latest Circle in the Darkness, Memoir of a World Watcher. We're talking about her r- recent essay at Consortium News, The Great Pretext for Dystopia, uh, where that appears. Again, Diana, I was listening to the Prime Minister this morning on the radio. He was doing an extensive, in Canada, he was doing an extensive uh, um, address. And they're talking now about organizing the vaccinations, the Pfizer vaccinations, hundreds of thousands, and I guess eventually millions of them, to be uh, distributed. Uh, There's a little short on the details of how that distribution is going to go and whether it's going to be forced or what's going to be happening to people. And I know Mr. Trudeau would say, well, I'm just you know looking for somebody to point my angry finger at. But uh, what about this idea of uh, where this pandemic is leading us? Well, you, you, you see, I, I, these things don't last forever. I'm sorry, you know, there have been plagues and, and pandemics and 
uh, great supposedly Spanish flu, which was actually started in Kansas. But they don't they don't last. So I I think that Klaus Schwab rather rather exaggerates this. I I think it will there will there are several there are umpteen vaccines. You know there are all kinds of vaccines. There's Russian vaccine and Chinese vaccine and Cuban vaccine. And of course, the specialty of American vaccine is it's always much more expensive than anybody else's vaccine. After already, the companies have received billions of dollars from the government to develop it. So uh, obviously, you get into big pharma, and everybody's very suspicious because it's such a huge um, profit-making machine. But there are there are other vaccines that are that are uh, less suspect of being purely mercantile. And uh, I suppose th- this thing will work, it, work itself out. I, I, I don't consider the COVID to be the great crisis. I think the, the great reset is more of a crisis. Um, I think there's a lot of scare about vaccine, but I just think there needs to be a lot of clear information about that. And also right. the fact that there are other vaccines which may be less suspect than, than the American ones. I would say, well, sure, what's in it? When, when you tell me what's in it, but when these big pharma are claiming proprietary secrets and they're not even telling us what's in it and it's being fast-tracked and their uh, culpability, should things go wrong, is being legally erased, uh, you know, it makes me worry. I'm, you know, I don't want to contradict the prime minister here, but uh, – I, I think I might have good cause to point an angry finger. Um, well, we're fast running out of time, Diana, but um, the four points of the World Economic Forum, they, they want to, one, change our mindset. They want to create new metrics. They want to design new incentives, and they want to build genuine connection. Well, that sounds not so bad. Uh, should I just go along with the WEF and not worry so much? Well, I, I say instead of worrying, we should be – Getting like study groups uh, to to examine the what we think technology should or should not do, and to find ways to block things with, that shouldn't be happen, like super soldiers. Right now, the you talk about democracy. There is no democracy when the most important decisions are being made with absolutely no regard whatsoever for public opinion. And I'm just saying that people have got to sort of wake up and reinvent democracy by being concerned about these real issues instead of being led to be concerned about issues that are trivial and uh, uh, and just being like little children and not knowing about anything that the grown-ups are doing. And again, with this autonomous world, we've seen uh, this recent war in Nagorno-Karabakh where uh, drones were deployed and uh, to great effect and turned the tide of that battle, some would say. The assassination in Iran of Dr. Uh, Fakhrizadeh carried out by a satellite-controlled automatic machine gun on the ground, if, if uh, the Iranians are to be believed. The world is changing quickly, and we're seeing uh, evidence of it uh, around us in little blibs and blabs. I'm, I worry that it's all going to come together in one horrendous picture, dystopia perhaps. Uh, before we go, uh, Diana, you're in France. The Gilets jaunes were a big deal for a year there. The COVID put uh, sort of a stop to that, at least on, on the surface. Uh, now the draft law, I saw a, a video of massive violent demonstrations again in the streets of France. Wh- what's your take on where France is right now and where it's going and, and the <laughs> the future of their president Macron? First of all, people are, are very dissatisfied. 
as far as COVID is concerned, the government has been very vastly, they, they've said, first of all, masks, no masks, there shouldn't be masks. Now there should be masks. There should, they, they keep changing. They don't really know. They don't know what they're doing. They don't. So there's total dissatisfaction with that. But as far as the yellow vests are concerned, the trouble there has been, there has been absolutely horrible repression of their movement. And added to that is the black bloc who show up and turn demonstrations into uh, attacks on police and attacks on shops, which turns a lot of the population against them. I am very, very suspicious of black blocks, let me tell you. Uh, in fact, I know from experience many years ago of having absolutely seen Casar being connected with the police to uh, deliberately cause the violence that will turn the public against the demonstration. I really feel something like that is happening. I also notice that it's selective. You, you've had ex demonstrations that were against the law because of COVID, et cetera, that were not permitted, that were in favor of Black Lives Matter, and they were allowed to, to occupy the Place de la République without any disruption whatsoever. When the yellow vests come out, they're shot at. Uh, they've had people with their eyes shot out, their hands shot out. Then the black blocks are allowed to run rampant and cause all kinds of chaos. I think that the movement, the spirit is still there, but it has been the object of terrible repression. I guess there's a reason why the, there's a French word, agent provocateur. And we saw here in Quebec City in 2010 with the, the agent provocateurs were caught on camera. They were outed uh, and it was blatant for all to see. They were doing the same thing, throwing rocks I've at the seen police. Them. I mean, I have seen them. In it's, an old, it's an old trick and I, I, yeah. I can't imagine how anyone still falls for it. Well, you, you finish uh, your article. You say, America, Americans have a choice, either continue to quarrel over trivialities or wake up, really wake up to the reality being planned and do something about it. Uh, well, what uh, Diana Johnstone has done is written, at, at least in one <laughs> small part, this article, you can find it, The Great Pretext for Dystopia at uh, consortiumnews.com and a lot of other of her writings there too. I really appreciate you coming on uh, today, uh, late, in the, uh, getting uh, late in the evening and towards supper time for you there in Paris. Thanks a lot. Again, it's, it's a joy to speak to you. And after so many years, perhaps we don't have to wait so long for our next conversation. I hope so. Anyway, it was, it was very nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. That was writer Diana Johnstone in conversation with Chris Cook of CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, operating on the unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Wasanek and Lekwungen peoples. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>